Well, good morning. Take your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Today we're going to look at the last half of the chapter of Ephesians 4. Begin with a foundation where God lays the theology of salvation and what happens in our sanctification. And then lead to very practical application about healthy relationships. I've entitled the sermon today, Be Kind. And thankfully, I don't know if Mary Margaret uh, coordinated this, this or not, but the children's coloring sheet in the lobby is on the keys to kindness. So if any of you uh, young children or big kids need a little note sheet, feel free to go uh, take care of that. I just noticed that. She told me to bring it up so that I would have something to say. And it says, uh, choose kindness is one of the coloring sheets. You can, you can color some cactus, and it says stick with kindness. So if you need some reminders today, uh, feel free to t- take advantage uh, of that. But sermon titles are interesting things, right? You have a big chunk of scripture, and you say, well, how, how do I uh, entitle that? I, to get some inspiration for my title today, I went to YouTube. Not to a specific video, but to see what are videos being titled these days to get people's attention. Um, I realized 500 new hours of video get uploaded to YouTube every minute. Okay, so 30,000 new hours of video per hour. So how do people get people to watch their videos versus others in addition to promoting them by paying a subscription? Uh, they, they have clever titles uh, like this. Maybe you've watched some of these. Uh, craziest courtroom moments of all time. That's very good to watch. Um, genius inventions that should be implemented everywhere. How many of you have seen those videos? Like You should have these inventions. Incredible <clears throat> storage solutions you didn't know about. Well, never knew those. How to get back in your canoe when it tips over. Uh, you know, important things that we spend our life watching and educating ourselves about. Obviously, essential topics. But if we watch these things, we'll hear what we've never heard before. That's the, that's the message. So with that inspiration, our, our sermon is ultimately about healthy relationships. I thought about these possible titles. So if these work for you, feel free to write them down. Ten relationship tips that the media won't tell you. So that's one of them today. Um, how to be the best friend anyone has ever had. We will talk about that. So if that works. Um, How to keep your marriage or dating relationships on track. We will talk about that. Or the number one secret to long-lasting relationships. We'll talk about that too. But ultimately, I said, let's just simplify it and be kind. Not because that encompasses the entirety of the sermon, but because the simplicity of Paul's application is shocking. How simple it is when Paul, through the Holy Spirit's inspiration, is calling us to live out the gospel transformation of our minds and our mindset. Application is usually from Scripture simple, straightforward, not hard to understand or remember, but maybe hard to apply. And yet, in its simplicity, Paul gives us, we could say, relationship advice in a way that's very theologically rich. Grounded in the gospel and in our identity in Christ. And if we understand that foundation, the application he'll make at the end of chapter 4, not only makes better sense, but it helps us understand the power and motivation by which we obey this scripture. 
So we'll have three layers, if you will, to our sermon today. One will be a foundational layer, just very quickly overviewing the theology of Ephesians, because that's the foundation upon which our application is built. We'll narrow a little bit to what God's talking about in sanctification in Ephesians 4, verses 17 to 24. And that's where we understand how our minds and identity are changed by the gospel. And then we'll look at some practical application of how to live in relationships with one another in the church and in all our relationships in the home as well. So those kind of the three layers, if you will, and we'll actually spend more time building the foundation than we will actually uh, applying it. So first, the big picture. And just for a moment, let me give an overview of Ephesians. We're not preaching through this book week by week, so let's, let's get a big idea of what God is doing through this letter uh, written by the Apostle Paul. Ephesians is an account of God's powerful work in the church when we receive our blessings, spiritual blessings, in Christ. He wants his readers to understand the eternal purpose of God. The big picture of God's salvation story of reconciling the church back to himself and unify the church with one another. So it's written both to Jews and Gentiles. And our understanding of the scripture in Ephesians leads us to holy living, worship, unity, and victory spiritually. If you remember Ephesians 6, the armor of God overtaking the powers of evil. So that's where Ephesians goes to. It talks about uh, God's work uh, as well as our response to God's work. Like many New Testament letters, the first half is an explanation of what God has done. Your spiritual blessings in Christ. That's Ephesians 1 through 3. And it praises God for his salvation and understands what this body of Christ is and what we've done in the church to uh, receiving the gift of salvation, not earning the gift of salvation. And then chapters 4 through 6 of Ephesians are our response. We could say our walk. God's work and our walk. How we respond to what God has done. The unity that comes to the body of Christ. The victory of Christ through his Holy Spirit. Again, through all of this time, we understand God's love, God's plan of redemption, his eternal purpose. And then the emphasis today is on this theme of Ephesians, that believers' faith is revealed in our conduct. Our faith is revealed in our walk. We no longer live in our former life, Ephesians says. Like what our text will say, the Gentiles. But now we have a new ethic, if you will. A new way of thinking and a new way of living. Ephesians 2 says we used to walk in trespasses and sins, but God made us alive. And our text today says we used to walk as Gentiles in futility and emptiness. But now we walk in good works, worthy of our calling. And this is a holy lifestyle. An imitation of God lifestyle. We don't earn salvation by these works, but these works are preordained evidences of our salvation. So as members of the church, how should we praise God for the spiritual blessings of chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians? By living in holiness with a new walk that's explained in Ephesians 4 through 6. This will be unlike our life before we were saved. 
and it will display that we are new creations in Christ. That's the big foundation here. Okay, That's the backdrop of our text, is a big picture understanding of what you have received individually, if you have come to know Jesus, and what we have received corporately as a church in the spiritual blessings of Christ, and then a high calling of a lifestyle worthy of that. Not earning that salvation, but evidencing that salvation. So with that foundation, we're looking to Ephesians 4, 17 now. To speak about our identity in Christ, because the healthy relationships of the last chapter begin with gospel transformation. Look at verse 17 of Ephesians chapter 4. Please note that the Gentiles here is referring to the unsaved or unbelievers. Um, It doesn't just mean non-Jews. It's what Paul would refer to in Ephesians 2 as Gentiles in the flesh. So that is non-Christians. So with that, look at verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk. That's talking about that lifestyle I said, your walk. Walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Old versus new, we will learn about. This is the old. This is a description of how a non-Christian not a believer in Jesus Christ's salvation, lives their life. But even more uh, basic, foundational, is how they think. What's their mindset, their identity, their perspective. And if you are a believer in Christ, this is how you thought and lived before you were converted. If you are here today and you are not yet a believer in Christ, this is how God describes your current mindset, your current lifestyle. And I admit it may seem somewhat offensive to have someone tell you that you are living in futility. I understand that. But that is God, the one who made you, calling you to a life of great joy. It's not my wisdom or advice to you to just change your life. It's God calling you by first helping you see your current condition accurately. So I ask if you are not a Christian, that you look at this passage as God's understanding accurately of your life and perspective right now, and then we'll see the hope that comes to be changed from that. Notice the relationship in verse 17 between the walk and the mind. It says, you no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of of their minds. Walk means lifestyle, how we conduct ourselves. Mind means more of our mindset. It's not really just what we know. The answer is not informational primarily. It's a perspective. You might say your attitude, your moral attitude, your disposition, how you view life, the lens through which you see all things, your thinking, how we think about life. And it's how we think. It's evidenced in our walk. 
And it's how we think that verse 18 says is not neutral. Look at verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance in them and the hardness and do their hardness of heart. Even our reasoning is spiritually dark. The perspective by which we see the world, we see God, we see right and wrong, we see all things is actually clouded before we come to Christ. It's darkened. John says that, the Apostle John in his gospel says that Jesus is the light. And that Jesus is the life. Brent spent a good bit of time speaking about that. And I find it interesting that this verse speaks of an unbeliever being separated, alienated from the life of God. And they're darkened in their understanding. Unbelievers are separate from God's light and his life. They're actually separate from the person of Jesus. It says, due to their ignorance and hardness of hearts, they have this darkness. And a callousness toward God and his work. I find it interesting that he calls us ignorant before we're saved. Many people who are not a believer in Christ have great amounts of knowledge and even practical wisdom, we would say. So is it accurate to call them ignorant? But again, we're not speaking of simply the amount of information that we have. We're talking about a perspective and a mindset. An unbeliever, according to this passage, is calloused. Calloused to God's work, calloused to sensitivity toward the Holy Spirit and God's work of salvation or the need to live a holy life. There's no sensitivity to do that. Just like a, a callous on your hand is, is dull to the sensitivity that, uh, of the palm of your hand might be. It's dull to God's work. So this leads unbelievers to pursue, not just fall into, not just struggle with, not just happen upon, but intentionally pursue sin with little sign of regret. Definitely no indication of repentance. These verses answer the question, not just what does an unbeliever do, but how does an unbeliever think? They follow their minds. And the futility of their minds, it begins. First of all, futility. This is an empty way of thinking. This is a useless way of thinking when it comes to a moral and spiritual perspective. But it's really just following their minds. It's a self-confidence in the way they see things. And without Christ, we all are that way. We all have a confidence in our perspective. I don't see it that way. Or this is what I believe. This is what I can do to be true to myself or to my way of thinking. But this kind of thinking has no sense of purpose. In contrast, once we follow Christ, we do that because the Holy Spirit's given us regeneration. We'll talk about the renewal here in a moment. And our thinking changes. Believers actually think differently than unbelievers. Our mindset. We don't accept and believe things just because it makes sense to us from our perspective. We accept and follow the mind of Christ that we see in Scripture. That is a simple explanation of the change in our mind that happens. We no longer are following in the futility of our minds. We are following the mindset of Christ. 
So a believer can't say, oh, I just don't see it that way. Scripture says that, but I just don't see it that way. That's not the believer. The believer is the one who says, I'm changing my mindset to be more like the mind of Christ. For the unbeliever, it's very acceptable to live true to myself, but the believer knows that living true to ourselves is actually a life of futility and emptiness. We need to be changed from the way we are, from the way we think, and transformed into the mind of Christ. In verse 19, we see that selfish thinking has then led to selfish living. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. There's an intentionality here. They're greedy for sin. They want more sin. It's not just something that they struggle with. And this is actually a helpful passage for people who are wondering, am I a true believer? Because believers sin, right? Are you a believer here and you've sinned? Believers sin. But there is a characteristic greediness towards sin that is characterizing unbelievers. Little thought for regret, a pursuit of sin. And so if you're wondering, am I truly a Christian because of the sin in my life? The question is not, do I sin? But what's my perspective on sin? Do I want to sin? And do I share the perspective of Scripture and the mind of Christ on my sin? So that's a sideline application, but it's definitely a passage to look at if you struggled in that way. This verse 19 obviously has some application for sexual sins, but sin of any kind can make us so callous to God as an unbeliever that we can commit sin seemingly without shame. A permissive way of living, doing whatever my mind desires to do. That's characteristic of an unbeliever. Verse 20 draws a line. Because the main audience of this passage is believers. Those who this characterized their former life. So verse 20 says, now I'm talking to you, those who have received Christ. Verse 20 says this. If you've heard and believed in Jesus, your mind, your mindset is different. It's changed. Look at verse 20. This is not the way you learned Christ. Not just learned about Christ. Not just you needed information change in in the computer of your brain. This is not the way you learned Christ. The person of who Jesus is. The mindset. You may have sung the song, May the mind of Christ my Savior fill me. Right? That's the idea here. This is not the way you learned Christ himself. Look at verse 21. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. We'll come back to that phrase in just a moment. Assuming this is the type of teaching you've learned about the gospel, which maybe we've learned incorrect teaching about the gospel, so he's kind of correcting that. He's saying, hey, just in case you've learned something different, I'm going to go ahead and list it. But assuming this is what you're believing, verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So you see what he's saying? If you learn this gospel, the gospel, the true gospel is that God changes you. He changes our mindset to where we are putting off 
what is characteristic of that former way of thinking that we just described. We're putting those things off. We're being renewed and we're putting on Christ-likeness. That's what's on the front of your bulletin. Bringing people to Christ and Christ-likeness. Because when you come to Christ, you can't stay the same. You can't meet Christ, have him convert your soul, and stay in the same mindset. That changes. But I find it interesting. Let's go back to what I said we would go back to. The truth is in Jesus. That's why it's very practical. Many of us like practical understanding of Scripture, right? Practical teaching, practical study. It's very practical to read the Gospels. And to know who Jesus is. His person, his work, who his identity is as the incarnate Son of God. His work of dying in our place so that our sin could be placed upon him. His resurrection to new life. His ascension, his authority over all things. The truth is in Jesus. Jesus is truth embodied. A new mindset is submitting to the truth of the person of Jesus. So in the next few verses, Paul is going to explain very clearly how people change. How the old person is changed into new behavior. So this is going to get real practical. And for some of you, this, you're very familiar with what this, these verses speak of. Others, you may not be very familiar with how a person, as a Christian, changes their behavior. How that even comes about from God's perspective. And this is one of the clearest passages on that. This is not primarily, though, a self-help seminar whereby you can change your behavior leaving today with one or two tips. These verses describe what happens to a person who embraces Jesus. It's something you do at a point in time, but it's then something you do every day. You embrace Jesus at conversion, and you run to Christ each day. If you've learned Christ, then this is how Your life will change. Verses 22 through 24, and then verse 25 on, we'll apply it specifically to our kind of specific topic. But verses 22 through 24 speak of now the new self. This is the good news. This is the good news that that former, futile, useless way of thinking does not characterize you throughout your life. If you come to Christ, that changes. Verse 22. You've been taught in Christ to put off your old self. There's a lot in here about identity. And while we're not going to speak about it so much from a psychological perspective today, it definitely applies to how we view ourselves. Who are we? As a believer, who are you? I've got an old self. I've got a new self. We could describe this old self as your flesh, that unredeemable part of you that desires sin. And that's characterized by that former way of living. The identity has changed for a believer. The temptation is to go back and continue thinking according to that. So put off, verse 22 says, your old self, which belongs not to your current identity. That's what it says. That that former self, it doesn't belong to who you are now. It belongs to your former manner of life. And it's corrupt through deceitful desires. You can't trust it. It's deceitful. When it says you need to go back and live this way or think this way, don't trust it. It's deceitful. 
So put that off. Be renewed. My mindset has to be changed. And then I put on. I don't see this exactly as a chronological process. Put off, renew, put on. Although it's often helpful to think about that if we're trying to defeat a certain sin or do something, apply God's word. What do I need to put off? What do I need to change my mindset? And then what do I need to renew uh, or to put on? But this isn't just a one, two, three, and done. This is a continual process of putting off, renewing our minds through Scripture and seeing the glory of God, and putting on the new self. Basically, as this is saying, your identity has, has changed. Who you are has changed as a believer. So your mindset and then your lifestyle will also change. Live out what is true. In Philippians, which Paul speaks of these same topics several places in Philippians, Colossians, and Ephesians. Philippians says, work out your own salvation, for it's God who works in you. I'm living on the outside what God has made true on the inside. Remember who you are, you could say to describe this. Remember who you are. Believers have a changed identity. But we're prone to return to living according to the old. So this is where biblical Christianity confronts not just our culture today, but humanity through all of history that's been unredeemed. When society says, be comfortable in your own skin. Or be true to who you are. Who I am is a sinner. Without Christ, who I am is a corrupt, futile in my thinking, enemy of God. I need to be changed from that. All of us do. So if that's happened, if you've come to Christ, you've been changed, and now remember who you are. A new self. What your old self offers will always be empty, but what Christ offers will always be fulfilling. And we sang today, yet not I, but Christ in me. That's, that's what our mindset should be, and that's where the power comes from to do that is through Christ. So we're putting on this new self, not really a call to change who you are. That's God's business. He does that. But now to live out who you are, a call to be what God has made us to be. Putting off the old as an old garment, being renewed in the spirit of your minds, it says. This is why it's not just saying adds information to your mind. It's the spirit of your mind. It's your mindset, your perspective, how you view things. Now you say, how would I go about being renewed? Right? It's being renewed. It's something that God does to me, is to renew, change, restore my mindset. That happens, Scripture says, when we behold the glory of the Lord. When you see the glorious goodness of God, you will be changed. When God reveals himself to you, First at conversion, and then continually as you behold the glory of the Lord, you will be changed. You say, how would I go about seeing that? Primarily through the person of Christ as revealed in Scripture. As you view that glorious Lord, you will be changed. So is this something that God does, or is this something I'm an active participant in? And I believe in the sanctification understanding of this, both. So we renew, this renewal work of the mind is the work of God, and then we put on the new person. Your identity has changed, so live this out. 
And, and, I, and that's a basic overview of this, and we probably could or should preach longer sermons on each of these verses to think theologically what's happening and practically how to work that out. But that's why Paul says, now, therefore, in verse 25. Verse 24 says we should be like God in holiness and living. Not because we can just add that like a Christmas ornament to the tree, but it's fruit of the Spirit from the inside out. Therefore, and he gives very practical advice. These next instructions relate to how we relate to one another, both in our actions and our words. These things are not complex or difficult to understand. These instructions range from stop stealing to forgive to be kind. And this is where we come to the no-fail strategies for long, healthy relationships, if that's the title you like, or something like that, right? This is where we get to the practical, God's answers to real-life problems. Because one of the greatest messages the church has to share is that God actually has answers to the real-life problems. When people post on social media, I've got this problem in my family, my relationships, my uh, work, most of them are relationships-related. God's Word actually has true answers to that because... He's the author of all relationship, and in the truth is in Jesus. So here we come to that. Relationships changed by the gospel. This is a passage often studied in uh, pre-marriage counseling to describe healthy communication, but it really has uh, application for every believer in every one of our relationships. So if you're a church member, let's apply these principles to how we relate to other members of the body here. If you're a spouse... Apply these to your marriage. Relate to how you relate to your friends, to your family, co-workers, everyone, really. Parents to children, children to parents. In these ways, look at verse 25. Therefore, based on all those things, theologically, it's happened to you and your identity. Having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. The put-off behavior is falsehood. That's characterized of the old person. And speak the truth. Lying imitates Satan, not Christ. So we need to speak the truth. How much in relationships would be avoided, conflict-wise, if we spoke only the truth? When we're speaking to someone or when we're speaking about someone. In a moment, he's going to address slander. We're just going around and telling people false things about someone when they're not there. Speaking the truth. This doesn't mean you have to say everything that's on your mind. Okay, this is not, That's not the admonition here. But it means I don't deceive by what I say. Because remember, deceit is characteristic of that, the old desires. So I don't deceive by what I say or by what I omit or by my actions or by my tone. I don't deceive. Because, and it grounds it in our identity as members of the same body of Christ. Because we are members one of another. We are family. So you're sinning against a member of the family. We have all received the grace of Christ together. We're joined in unity. And as one church, one body, let it be a body filled with words and actions of truth. For the truth is in Jesus. God's word is truth. Let our words and actions be filled with truth. Feel free to write these down as a simple list or just make a note to come back to verses 25 and following because 
They're great topics of study. Or if you're on the cactus coloring page, you can write them down at the bottom of that. Verse 26 to 27 speaks of our anger. It says, be angry. Now, there's no period after angry. Okay. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give opportunity to the devil. If your propensity is toward anger, you probably look at this and see, see, God says that anger is not sin. Be angry. Do not, as long as I don't sin, I got all my anger is stamped of approval by God, right? If we're naturally in a disposition that way. Um, keep control. Do not lose your temper. To use our modern way of saying it. Anger, no, is not intrinsically evil. For God is angry righteously towards sin and anything that steals glory from him. So our anger can be righteous if we are angry at the things that God is angry at. Things that displease God and steal glory from him. Often human anger does not fall into that category. Are we honest about our anger? It nearly always becomes sinful because we are either angry for self-serving reasons, just living out that futility of our minds from the beginning of our passage, or we let our anger fester and grow so it stays unresolved. And the next verse says the devil has an opportunity when that happens. The devil has an opportunity to create disunity, to discourage your growth in Christ And to break relationships. So speak calmly with clarity. And work to resolve our conflicts instead of letting them fester. This verse means more than don't go to bed angry. Though that's not bad advice. It's good advice. But that's a proverbial way of talking about the danger of letting anger simmer. Because that's what it does. You can almost feel it sometimes. Like coals of fire burning in your mind and heart. Of negative thoughts towards someone about to burst forward in harsh language. That's an opportunity for Satan. Don't give him that opportunity. Deal with it. Don't let the sun go down. Go go reconcile that relationship. So keep control. All right, verse 28. Work hard and share generously. I find it interesting that one of the best relationship strategies is to go to work. Right? Go work hard. Earn your paycheck. So you're not dependent on someone else and you can generously give to others. You're better prepared to have healthy relationships when your work ethic follows the consistency of this passage. So don't steal from one another. Instead, each person should work hard. God here is actually giving eternal value to every type of work, even manual labor, even the menial tasks, simple tasks that we're expected to accomplish. And there's application for work here that we won't take the time to speak about, but the eternal value in our work comes not just from finding our dream job, but finding the ultimate eternal purposes through our work. Verses 29 to 31 speak uplifting words. So you can actually help, whether you're explaining this to a child or understanding it as an adult, you could write down in two columns what are old self ways of speaking and what are new self ways of speaking. Very helpful. 
Maybe specific words that you struggle to say and put them on one category or the other. Tone, type of things that you say. But as a whole, verses 29 and 30, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Only such is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Unwholesome, corrupt, tearing down kind of speech, which I don't think I have to explain to you what that is. We've all been the recipient of that. We know what it feels like. We know what it's like. Should be replaced by uplifting, building up. What are your words building? There's no neutral speech here that just says I'm passing the time, shooting the breeze. I'm either tearing down or I'm building up. Does it fit the occasion? Is it appropriate to say right now? And does it give grace? What an opportunity we have spiritually when we open our mouths to give grace to other people. The scripture actually speaks of the fellowship of grace. That is, this church or relationships among believers can be an avenue of God's grace to one another. That's why we don't need to forsake the assembling of ourselves together because there's grace that actually comes from God to us through other believers. So when you open your mouth today speaking to one another, you have the opportunity to speak of Christ and give grace. Why? Because tearing down with our words, verse 31 or excuse me, verse 30, grieves the Holy Spirit. If you wrong someone with your words, that person's not the only person that was hurt. It grieved the Holy Spirit, sin against God. And this is very convicting because our sin with our speech happens often, often. Verse 31 kind of sums up the rest. <laughs> says, if I haven't covered anything to this point, don't poison your relationships with this malicious behavior. Look at verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander. Clamor is kind of that uh, external combative speech that, that arguments rise to. Let all of that be put away from you. And every time it says put away, I want you to think about the context in which we're talking about. Because you're supposed to put off the old self. That's why it's continually using this put away language. Take off that old garment. It doesn't match your new identity. Let all these things put away from you with all malice. Don't let bitterness poison relationships. And simply speaking, bitterness means don't hold people's past faults against them. You say, well, they deserve it. I say, you can't Bear that. I can't hold their past faults. God's justice is very sufficient to take care of the sins of man. But we cannot. Anger and wrath, slander, speaking falsely about others, ruining their reputation. Put this away and instead, verse 32. And this is kind of a culmination here. Be Kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another. Your, your version may say, Be gracious to one another, as Christ forgave you or has been gracious to you. How simple does that sound? It's one of the first verses you might teach a child to memorize is to be kind one to another. But how hard it is to do. Kindness is evidence of a compassionate, tender heart, it says. 
tender-hearted. Contrast that with the callousness of the unbeliever earlier in our passage, right? That wasn't sensitive to what God was doing in their life. This believer, who's now having the mindset of Christ-likeness, is tender-hearted. They're sensitive to God's work in their life through the Holy Spirit. They're also tender and sensitive toward the needs of other people instead of those behaviors of verse 31. And without the risk of sounding too simplistic, I think most of our relationship problems could be solved when we ask the question, is this kind? So, if you need a very simple application today, write it on a sticky note, put it on your mirror, is this kind, right? It, It really comes down to us choosing unkindness because of selfishness. And it's not more complicated sometimes than asking, is it kind to say that? Well, no. Well, then don't say it. Why? Because that's not characteristic of your life in Christ. Uh, Kids and teens, how should you talk to your parents? Well, is it kind? Okay. You know, say kind words. Parents, should we listen to our child's story or pick up our phone? Well, which one's kind, right? Show kindness in these things. These are convicting day-to-day type uh, applications. Positively, is it kind to send that person a note of encouragement? Well, if you think of it and it's kind, do it. Why? Because it's characteristic of our life in Christ. Ask the question. And really, every time we read Scripture, by the way, we should be saying, does my life match this verse? You could go through our whole passage and say, Lord, what in my life today does not imitate Christ's likeness in this way? Why should you be kind? It sounds very simple. Why? Because it will transform your relationships into healthy ones? Absolutely it will. But ultimately because it is evidence that our minds and our mindset have been transformed and renewed by the Holy Spirit. That we are becoming more and more like Jesus. And and when you read a verse like this, especially when it speaks of being tender-hearted and gracious to one another, we think of personality types, don't we? How many of you know people who are gracious and tender-hearted, but it's related to their personality, right? That's who you're thinking of. Oh, that, that's that kind of person. That's a spiritual gift. Well, often expressing kindness in certain ways is spiritual giftedness. But there's no excuse for not being wired this way somehow. This is really a challenge for all of us. And if that is not... How we live characteristically and think. Pray and ask God to tenderize our spirit. Make me sensitive to what you are doing in the world, what you're doing in other people's lives. Help me listen better to what they are going through and let me forgive even if they have wronged me. This is a divine work. It's not characteristic of of people. It's not something we naturally get better at. We need the Holy Spirit to do this. And lastly here, forgive. As God in Christ has forgiven you. Many relationships are broken. Not by faults committed today. But by faults committed yesterday and weeks and months ago. Forgiveness does not mean overlooking abuse or putting up with dangerous behaviors. There's a reality that some sins take a long time for relational healing. That's reality in a broken world. And some will have permanent consequences. But in all matters, whether great or small, commit and release them to the Lord's care. 
The Lord's justice. We are not meant to bear those things. This is all grounded in our own forgiveness, which we did not deserve. We don't grant forgiveness to others because they deserve it. We did not receive forgiveness because we deserved it. As God in Christ forgave you. It's all grounded in our own forgiveness. For we forgive only when we understand the work of the gospel on our behalf. For in the cross, I see my sin most accurately. And everyone else's. This passage gives us a big picture understanding of what God is doing in your life if you're a believer. He's changing us. And there's some very simple but practical help that we have great struggle in our life because we've not followed these things. I challenge you to to look back at this scripture and say, Lord, would you in some way change my mindset? Not just my actions. Because that's just evidence that I've got the wrong mindset. My mindset toward your purposes. Specifically in relationships, we could go throughout Ephesians in the whole scripture and apply this all over. God does that. But live like who we are. New creations with kindness, compassionate hearts, serving one another to the glory of God. He desires his body of Christ to live in harmony and unity. Yes, that's not going to happen perfectly right now, this side of heaven. But we can live out the mind of Christ in a way, yes, that will bring healthy relationships and true joy. But it brings true glory to the one who sacrificed himself for us. First Corinthians says, so that we would no longer live unto ourselves unto him who for our sake died and rose again. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that our lifestyle, our mindset, if it's been changed by the gospel, would then outflow in our words, our conduct, and our actions. For those who are here today who have not yet placed their faith in Christ, I pray that they would maybe understand their, their condition more accurately today and realize their need for an eternal home in heaven, but a change of mindset right now because they, are, they need a relationship with their creator. So would you bring them to salvation today? May the service and our time of fellowship afterward and our uh, shepherding class hour to come bring glory and honor and praise to you in Jesus' name.